0: So I'm embarrassed to admit that uh, Canton Pillay has been on the show. He's been part of the Burning Platform for years now. I've known him for years. There's so many things I just do not know, which is dreadful. So I'm glad to actually have you in here and be able to tell a little bit about your story because it's a very interesting and quite complex, just like you, story. So it's a pleasure to have you in here and focus on you for a change instead of all the issues in the world.
1: It's fascinating because I think for the first time I don't need to have notes and a laptop in
0: front of me. No, you're just going to be talking about yourself. just
1: make up stuff as I go along.
0: Which you don't normally do, and people project their stuff onto you when you talk about things on the Burning Platform, for example. If you have an opinion about Russia or China, or it must be because you're a big Russia supporter, or you're a big India or China supporter. It's bizarre. And um, now
1: suddenly I'm an Israel supporter. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 of
0: course. Mm. Um, But you're not afraid of any of that anyway. You could care less. Pretty much. Yeah. So listen, t- tell me about the the family, because your mother was a, a, a parli- member of parliament. Is that the tricameral parliament?
1: No. Well, she accidentally ended up in the tricameral parliament. Yes, that's right. Because mm. she used to be director general of the uh, Department of Education. That was… Under in, the old un- regime. Under the old… Re- so it was… Um, oh. Remember at the time it was Indian Affairs. Yes, and so she was heading up education at the time, and you might remember there was this corruption scandal that happened in, uh, I think it was called the House of Delegates, was the, yes. the Indian Chamber of Parliament, right? And there was Rajbanshi's lot, um, and de Klerk basically fired uh, Rajbanshi's cabinet, and then he needed, um, you know, people to start running stuff, and so he put in my mother as Minister of Indian Education. Wow. So she she got drafted into it and uh, then when the 1994 elections came along he promptly put her onto the national party slate and so um so she was a national party member of parliament. But uh, it's been a source of contention in my family f- uh, for years that I did course, not Of course because you, you did vote a... for my mother. Yes.
0: Right, you didn't vote for your mother. You you were you were basically persona non grata to the national party. Uh no, you, actually, you were in, you were in the struggle for heaven's sake.
1: Yes, but but surprisingly, I actually had a, a, a reasonably good relationship with um uh with Rolf Meyer in particular. Yeah. And um uh, and so De Klerk was actually quite civil in terms mm-hmm. of dealing with me. Tony Leon far less so. But uh,
0: this is in the eighties, and I mean you you were you were studying yes. at the University of, of Durban Westville, Yes. And, and you and were expelled. I was expelled there for Because war. you were politically <laughs> Dangerous.
1: Look, I, I don't want to make that sound bigger than it actually is because hey, there listen, were a lot
0: of us who were expelled back yes, then. Yes, but you know. student politics is where all politics starts. Mm-hmm. And you were a real rebel rouser. I mean, you wrote stuff, you said stuff, unlike not unlike what you do now.
1: No, very much so. And the uh, interesting thing is if I look back at stuff that I've written back then, so my first byline was – in 1980, after I got kicked out of university, I became a freelance journalist, mm-hmm. and uh, I think my views have actually not changed um, during the uh, the course of time. Well, apart from economics,
0: but you, know. you also—I mean, there's there's a lot of music in the family too. Your father was a classical Indian vocalist, right? And um, you, you've got pop stars in the family. I do indeed. Yeah. Yes. Right, uh, Creason. Creason is my first right. cousin. Yes, indeed. Oh, yes. I'm, I saw him at your birthday a while ago, and I, I didn't know there was a connection then. I went, but obviously there's a connection here. Yeah. So, I mean, it's very also another interesting thing about you that I I got in my notes. You know, these copious notes that uh, the producers give me. You you were at high school in Bangalore. Yes.
1: So again, that was because of um, uh, of student activism. So back in 1974, you might remember. Well, there was a sequence of events that affected the, uh, the subcontinent. Captain, so, I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> here in 1974. <laughs> well, essentially in 1974, <laughs> there was the coup in Portugal. Right. And a result of the coup in Portugal, suddenly you had Mozambique declaring independence, you had mm. uh, Angola declaring independence and of course there was Frelimo at the time. Yeah. That was uh, that was fighting and uh, there was a Frelimo rally that was organized in Durban that was at Curry's Fountain which was the playground for my school that was at Gandhi Desai. And uh, of course we got swept up in that and my mother at the time said to me, well you know if you stay here you're going to keep getting caught up in all of this rubbish, and
0: uh, why don't I send you to boarding school in india which is such an interesting point of view to take because most parents would be oh just just behave, you know stop causing trouble yes um and and even though your mother was In government, so to speak. No, she wasn't at the time. She wasn't at the time. And she didn't have political ambitions at that point. She never had any political ambitions, actually. But still irritated as a mother that her son should be causing trouble or proud of you. Which was it? I I think it was more
1: a a question of her getting scared that I might get sucked into the
0: destructive more of losing perspective. <laughs> well, well, you can joke about it, but, but yes. there were actual dangers involved then. I mean, yes. we've got to well, remember there were states look, of emergency. Look, understand, I,
1: I, I was 12 going on 13 at the time. So, Jeez, that's
0: a hell of a, a time to be politically conscientized.
1: Yeah. I don't think I was politically aware at 12, 13. Well, you have to understand that I had, uh, in my family I had lots of people who were actually you know, politically active. So, you know, one of my cousins um and her husband needed to go into exile on an exit permit mm. um uh, at the time. Um another one of my cousins um was actually arrested at the Frenimo rally. And of, of course that's where the likes of Sat Scooper, String Moodley, Terra Lakota, all of them went to Robben Island precisely for being at that rally. Sure. So uh, they were the youngest crop of people to to go across there. And I, th- I think, from my mother's perspective, you know, there was the sense of yes, there, there's you know, real potential uh, danger of um, you know, kids getting well, firstly beaten up by the cops. You know, so that was the the first yeah. thing that one wanted. Yeah,
0: uh, wanted to because avoid. the cops were violent. I mean, the, the South Africa has sure. got a history of the mm-hmm. cops being violent. But does it irritate you? Because I I know you now and. People assume all kinds of things about your politics now because you're a capitalist, because you're more conservative than you are liberal in very many instances. I mean, you're still socially very liberal, I think. It's fair to say. But well, people, in the classically liberal sense, Yeah, yes. but, but people, uh, you know, when, if you ask them about Canton's politics and they know even a little bit about you, they go, oh, well, you know, he must be a, an arch-conservative. And then you've got this history and this background and it's hard to, it's exhausting actually to keep explaining this to people and you don't have to run around with your credentials. No, but I think that people have this
1: desire to put you into a particular box without, um, you know, just simply based on the fact that you offer an opinion on on something very specific. Now, if I look in terms of my, my personal belief system, I've got, A lot of classically liberal values, So, you know, I'm a freedom of speech absolutist, for example. You know, I don't believe that there should be such a category as hate speech, you Mm. know, but, you know, you can say things that are pretty much hateful. And if, uh, if you call for someone to be killed, you know, well, that's incitement. There's a separate charge around that. I'm very much against the death penalty. I'm very much in favor of gay rights. Um... (laughs)
0: Yeah, <laughs> you know all of that type of stuff. But what uh, what, what, what has changed since you were a teenager and, and, a, and a guy in his twenties who was very politically aware, outspoken, and all the rest? But nothing's changed in terms of the outspokenness. But your position on things? I, I guess the economic perspective is the single thing that that basically I saw such changed. a funny tweet the other day, mm. or it was it was a post on Instagram of a tweet. Someone said, "I watched this girl getting her first paycheck, and you could almost see the socialism." Ebbing out of her veins. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is that what happened?
1: Well, no, it it wasn't really that. It was um, at at the point at which uh, I, I realized that we can have all of these, you know, relatively cool ideas about, you know, we're all equal and we all have the same rights. But damn it, we're not all as competent as each other.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And and that becomes the fundamental point of differentiation because uh-huh. you can all be lumped into um the same group and you ostensibly have the same background and you treated pretty much as equals but at the end of the day you don't actually have the same
0: capacity to do stuff well and, socialism uh, thinks we're all the same and if we're not then we just need to change the system because then we can make the outcomes the same
1: very much so but uh you know the point at which you ask any uh parent um, do you want to, uh, to be treated by a doctor of your race, or do you want to be treated by the best possible doctor?
0: Yeah, they'll choose and, the and, and best doctor. And suddenly, uh, you know, they um, doesn't matter how political they are. Absolutely, best doctor. But but interesting that you found your way to Princeton again because you were kind of trying to get out of the country. It was
1: a, again that that's a fascinating story, and it's untel- yeah. I mean,
0: it, first of all, it's mm, interesting you're at mm. Princeton, and even though you've mentioned it to me before, when I found out what you were doing there and what you studied there uh-huh. and what you guys managed to do in terms of advancing uh, computer technology, um, the, the exact thing that you did, and it, it was fluid dynamics, computational, <laughs> computational. CfD, fluid yeah. dynamics. Yes. I mean, that's that. we'll get to that in a second. So <laughs> tell me about how you ended up at Princeton.
1: Well, in, um, so... Of course, I was a university dropout out here. Well, you know, expelled from Durban Westville. and uh,
0: Not uh, a dropout. You expelled. It's <laughs> different right. to a dropout. Okay. Sure. All right. Okay. <laughs> expelled. I was a dropout. <laughs> yeah.
1: So expelled from Durban Westville. And um, in early 85, uh, um, you had USALEP, the United States, South Africa Leadership Exchange Program. Yeah. And they set up something with Boston University to essentially provide – a uh, very intensive training program for South African journalists who'd never had any formal training. Okay. So there was an entire group of us who ended up um, at Witts Business School for that period with these uh, professors from uh, from Boston University who um, were teaching us for that six-week program. And so we went through that six-week program, and at the end of that six-week program, um, the professor was heading up the program his name was Hank Libri. Um, uh, it was actually Henry Grattan Libri, but he, uh, you know Americans' uh, affectations call, he called himself Hank. But yeah. he, he calls me into his office, and uh, he says, "Look, I've had you here for six weeks, and um, I've taught you absolutely nothing because you know all this stuff already." And uh, and and I just you know kind of shrugged, and I said, "Well, okay." <laughs> I still had fun, <laughs> you know. It was good. I enjoyed it, and uh, um, and and he pushes a, a pile of papers across to me, and I, I say, "What's this?" He says, "I want you to fill these out. These are uh, endorsements for scholarships in in the U.S." Wow! And uh, That's amazing. And, and and I said, "Well, you know what the hell?" And I went through the process of, of filling out the paperwork, and uh, and then come 1986 with the the state of emergency. And, you know, the cops knocking on my door at three in the morning. Fortunately, I was not at home at the time. I was uh, staying legally at William Saunderson Mayer's home, hmm. um, living in his basement. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, the security branch was knocking at my door looking for me. And, uh, and guess what? I end up with acceptances to about five universities in the US.
0: But. You didn't leave because you wanted to go to the U.S. I mean, that may have been part of it, but you also had to get out. Well, I had to get out, oh. and
1: and this was a godsend because you know it suddenly pitched up, you know, from nowhere,
0: and, and uh, scholarships too. So you didn't have to worry that exactly, your parents yeah. would have to pay for this because it might have been very well, very it, difficult.
1: It, it wasn't a question of my parents because you know I was I was you know basically employed and, and paying my own way from the time I was. But you wouldn't years have been old. able to afford it necessarily. No, absolutely not. Oh. Yeah.
0: Okay, so tell me what computational fluid dynamics are.
1: Well, it it basically is it it deals with flow. You know, so just about everything that involves, you know, an object moving through the atmosphere or moving through water, it, it, it's it's flow.
0: So it's oh. not it's not you know, liquid uh drives or any of that stuff. It's no. actually about fluids. It's well, about so it's, physics. Well, yes. it's yeah. a
1: physics. Yes. Yeah. So so basically an aircraft wing in involves right. fluid dynamics. And uh, so very specifically the design in terms of aircraft wings um requires a fair amount of computation because, you know, you do a combination in terms of, you know, how long the wings need to be, how wide they need to be, you know, how much the flaps should be uh, there's a lot of computation that that goes into that. And the particular uh, computation that we used to do at at the time, we used to run on these silicon graphics machines, which were the fastest machines that we had at the time. You might remember jurassic park. the yeah. uh, the animations that were done for that were mm. done on silicon graphics machines, and we were using pretty much those same machines wow. at um, uh, at uh, at Princeton. And then Intel pitched up, and they had um, um, this processor, which was the, the i860 processor, which uh, at at the time... Intel Hypercube. Yes, well, at the time, in terms of, uh, of floating-point operations, was roughly half the speed of uh, of a Cray YMP, which was the fastest supercomputer at the time.
0: Wh- when is this? 19... 1989,
1: 1990, around about that time frame. Okay. And uh, and so so they pitched up, and they, they essentially gave us this box, and they had 32 of these chips in a particular box. And, and they said, look, you know, we've designed this thing, and we don't know what to do with it. So, hmm. <laughs> you know, what can you guys, guys do with it? So the particular runs that we used to do at the time, and, and it, a lot of the work that we were doing there, at, uh, this was the program in Applied and Computational Math at Princeton. A lot of the work we were doing was for the U.S. Department of De- uh, Defense. Yeah. Because you know it was the so you know they 'd come to us, and they 'd say we 'd want you to run this computa- computation because um, it's it 's a submarine fin, right, and then we'd take a look at it and we 'd say, "No, this is actually an aircraft design, but that 's okay, we get it <laughs> we 'd run the computation, but it would take like two weeks for 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 the entire sequence to run because it it, it was very intensive, and you know you had to keep punching
0: the numbers. And, and the computing power then was not. As compact or well, no or, nowhere near as or, 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 or incredible nearest. as as what we use now. I mean, computers near. were very rudimentary things, and I, I mean, people like Ray Kurzweil at MIT were using things that took up a whole floor.
1: Yeah, very much this. so. You know, I mean, you, in you know, the eighties, that was like
0: the big. Well,
1: well to run the IBM thirty eighty one mainframe, which was the biggest thing that we had on campus at the time, it it was you know bigger than this house, the floor that uh, <laughs> uh, that we used to run it on. But uh, so they pitched up. Uh, so, so what what we figured out um, was that we could kind of compartmentalize the way in which we were doing the calculation. So, if if you think of an aircraft wing as an example, mm. and essentially what you're trying to do is to calculate the flow over segments of the wing at a time, and so we then partitioned the wing into separate segments and ran each of those. Computations on individual processes and then lump them together. Do I mean, the you time. have
0: like a wind tunnel that you would test these things out on? No, no, time? no.
1: It's, it's all entirely theoretical.
0: All so, theoretical. Yes.
1: Yeah, so because, you know, they're, they're all known quantities, you know. So,
0: so you, the, you wouldn't build the thing necessarily, but you'd do the science for them and then they would do exactly, it. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so oh. you know. You weren't involved in the manufacture no. or the actual practical testing no, or any no. of that stuff. No,
1: it's, it, you know, it's, it's fun in
0: theory. But, but you'd say won't. this angle would produce this amount of lift. Yeah, uh, this is where the the airflow well, uh, goes. Well, well,
1: well, it's lift, it's turbulence, it's um, sure, you, you know, all sorts of efficiency, the amount of power. And when
0: people think of, of of aerodynamics, they don't think of fluid because we <laughs> immediately assume well, it's a gas. But at those speeds and temperatures, very often gases behave exactly like liquids, and in fact, the effect that's produced is precisely the same. Sure. And uh,
1: so, essentially, well. what we were able to do using the hypercube is that we were able to slash the computation time from two weeks down to two days. Wow. Which which meant that we then ended up beating out the rest of the country for getting, at the time, a a U.S. Department of Defense grant for $14 which was a fair fair whack of money at the time.
0: That's incredible.
1: Yeah, so uh, Professor Stephen who was head of – a department at the time, was uh, pretty smug about it. Uh, he's he's dead now, lovely guy. Well,
0: uh, what's happened to tertiary education in the U.S. since you left? Oh, geez.
1: <laughs> Look, I, I think… <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's become a disaster. Uh, the thing is… A, a I don't lot think of, they teach anything like <laughs> computational fluid dynamics anymore. They just teach you gender studies and other grievance studies.
1: Look… I, Not so I, much I, at I, Princeton. Yeah, I, I think that… You'll find that, <laughs> you know, one of the major issues right now is that a lot of the actual computational power is no longer at the universities themselves. So sure. At Princeton, at the time we had uh, mm. we had the John von Neumann Supercomputer Center uh, at the Princeton Plasma Physics Lab, which actually had a Cray YMP, and you know, wow, you, you had to submit applications in order to get your code to run out there. Um, uh, uh, and so forth so um, our friend from Beautiful Mind uh
0: Yes, there yes. was an actual person. Yes. The, yeah. the movie was based, Russell Crowe played the character. Yes, yes. Yeah. this mathematical genius. Nash, that's his name. So and so he was a real guy.
1: He was a real guy. Yeah. He, he used to come um, to the Princeton Computer Center and he used to give me his code to run on punch cards. Really? And, yeah, and I used to tell him, you know, we actually have interactive terminals where you can, and can he run them. didn't want No, no, it. he didn't want anything because he said <laughs> correctly because they're actually inefficient. (laughs) They're taking up computing resources and, you know, everything I've got here is on my punch cards. And so I'd say, sure, i would go load it up
0: for Um, it. So when the movie came out, you must have been quite thrilled. You said to people, I I worked with this guy. Um, I only
1: found out about the movie coming out because um, uh, Ed Milgers, who worked with me at the the computer center, then sent me frantic messages on Facebook to say, hey, look, our our old friend is, now has a movie made about him. That's anyway, amazing. Yeah.
0: What a story, huh? Loads of fun, yeah. And the research and the work that you did there then got you a job in, of all places, Sardinia.
1: Well, there was a visiting um, Italian scientist huh? uh, who was, was um, seconded to uh, PACM at the time and... Um, and he saw the stuff that I was doing, and
0: uh, it's okay, why you're not a comer to Sardinia? <laughs> that's what he said. Well, that's an exact quote. Pr- pretty, I've got it here.
1: Pretty much something like that. <laughs> uh, look, I, I had a choice at the time I, I, uh, because I got job offers from from Wall Street because uh, so I, right. I think so. Solomon Brothers offered me a forty thousand dollars signing bonus at the time. Wow, that
0: would to, have been a good. To, r- to go so, as Wall an arch capitalist, which I know you are, no, but I how wasn't. How could you turn that down? I
1: wasn't. I wasn't, a, I wasn't a, look, I mean, it was a toss-up between science. Go, What's wrong with you? No, go and go and work Wall Street, or go to a Mediterranean island that I know absolutely nothing about. But
0: you, yeah. you could have, uh, for all we know, you could have come back to South Africa and bought three quarters of the country if you'd gone to Wall Street. Then,
1: yeah, but on the other hand, you know, I'd probably end up like <laughs> David Sachs
0: and never coming back. That's also true. And you did, when you eventually came back, and I don't mean to skirt past Sardinia because I'm sure you had a lovely time there and I'm sure it wasn't boring. And I'm sure that you learned plenty and you also met fascinating people. But to skip ahead, you did come back to South Africa and you decided straight away, I'm staying. Yes. I mean, things had changed considerably since when you left. Yes,
1: well, I came back December 93 and...
0: Uh, then things were really kicking yeah, off. Yeah,
1: and so I just went back and said, guys, I'm going to be out of here um,
0: he has my three months'
1: notice, and
0: uh, all right. So, yeah. talk to me about your perception of South Africa in '93, and why you <laughs> wanted to come back, and what you saw happening. Because it was, I mean, that whole period from 1990 until probably '95 six was the most exciting period in South Africa in terms of everything changing, the sure. economy, the obviously the politics, uh, society itself was changing a lot. There were so many amazing moving parts all at once. It would have been very hard for anyone, especially if they were South African, like you, to say, no, no, I'd rather be somewhere else. So a couple of things happened on, on that particular trip that
1: you know, were, were kind of juxtaposed with each other. Mm-hmm. The one is that the Avia Bia were having a march From the Fortrecker Monument.
0: So you joined them immediately. (laughs) 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 Well, that's what people say. That right-winger, you must have. I don't think I would have passed the physical back then. Yeah, no, no, for sure. (laughs) But, uh, so... They were planning a march from the Fortrecker Monument. Yes.
1: To where? Um, Somewhere in Pretoria, but... I happened. They, they were ha- notoriously bad at marches and coups. Yeah. So I happened to be in Pretoria at the, uh, on that particular day because um, my then wife, as a mother of my eldest daughter, yes, um, was studying at Unisa at the time, and so uh, we figured we'd just pitch up there and actually submit the applications in person. And then as we were driving past, you know, your and and we see the avia beer guys how many of them were there at that point well th- that wasn't the issue as much as the fact that they were all decked out um they had also literally you know and they they were in ox wagons and and marching along and then they would uh, uh and then there was the cuppy commando uh, people you know i mean the old ladies of th- cuppies yeah, yeah with the, with their bonnets and uh, like it was a throwback to the previous century And then a pitch up at at UNISA, and there are hundreds upon hundreds of people in this queue, but the overwhelming majority of the people there are young black people. Mm. And guess what? UNISA had actually anticipated that there was going to be this type of queue, and they'd actually laid out enough chairs to accommodate everyone, so there was a line sneaking all the way outside to the admissions place, but and well, it Imagine was just how inc-
0: angry the Avia beer would have been And it
1: was just incredibly quick and efficient Avia beer and, 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 would have been saying, so
0: cross though if So on the one that.
1: hand you've got you know, 100 years in the past, and then the future yeah. of the country, and I was saying now I've got to be part of this and it was really that simple, you know I said, I'm not going to miss this Yeah.
0: I- yeah. I need to be back it must have been fantastically exciting. And, and South Africa was, was a burgeoning place at that yeah. point. And uh, the focus of the world was on us, right? So, okay, you get back to South Africa, but now you're a scientist, actually, at yes. this point. And what kind of career prospects did you have? Because media wasn't on the cards for you at that point. Well, actually, I
1: went right back to media, but I went back to them. Because from... you were
0: writing, sorry, let's hmm. just fill in. You oh. you were writing as a student, and even before then, and you you actually gave lectures at Princeton in South African history. Yes, mm-hmm. so that's that's no small feat for for anyone at that period of their life to be lecturing other students at well, Princeton about it. It it, it, you know. it
1: was useful because of the fact that the, the crop of academics that and remember we're talking what close to forty years ago now. Yeah, they, they were an entirely different batch, and uh, it, it it was such an exciting place to be, you know. Free speech was you yeah. know, absolutely the norm in in that place, and and the discussions would be absolutely robust. But um, it it really was the type of thing where they they would say, "Look, hey, we've got a guy right here who's got first hand experience on the ground, let's and him on. and we're going to pull him in, and we're going to actually right. have conversations and and get the students to engage with the." Um, uh,
0: okay, but let's just stop with free speech for a second because it's something that I often get into arguments or discussions with with friends and enemies of mine about, you said you're a free speech absolutist, which is a position that many have said is an untenable one. You, you, there's always going to be a limit to everything. Something without limits isn't worth anything. Why, why do you say you're an absolutist? Well, Because it's a position I've occupied before, mm. and I've, I've kind of ameliorated that somewhat. So the first thing is that I'm very clear that words are not violence.
1: I agree with you, okay, violence is violence, yes, right, Agreed. um hurt feelings are never going to be the same as actually getting a snot club, yes, okay, I don't care who you are, yes, um, and you know, having been on the receiving end of snot clubs myself and um and <laughs> lots of verbal abuse i can I can tell you that um yes, there's a definite difference between the two in the cases where speech might potentially be dangerous, okay, so clearly if you're with a crowd of people, and you say that person is an impimpi.
0: Go and kill him. Mm.
1: That's not a free speech issue. Okay, no. yeah, that's actually incitement to violence. It's an entirely different category. But there's
0: already a category for that. We don't need to create a hate speech category. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So um, people bring up the old chestnut about you know shouting fire in a crowded theater. You've mm. heard that one many times. Yeah. And and again, that's reckless endangerment. There's a separate category for that. You don't need to actually police it. Um, at the point at which you tell lies about someone, there's well, defamation. There's defamation. Yeah. So where is the point at which you need to actually be curtailing
0: speech other than to protect someone's feelings? But Canton people's feelings are very important. We've been, we've been led to believe over the last 10 years they are the most important thing. And how someone feels about the world is their truth. Sure,
1: and you know this comes back to religion, doesn't it? Because it it is you know fundamentally that if, uh, you know all religions are variations on my imaginary friend is bigger than yours, and yeah. uh, the point at which you have someone like me who's um, atheist, I'm you know very respectful of people's spaces, but I'm certainly going to speak up to my beliefs and I want to, and people, are, people's feelings are going to be hurt as a result of that. And, so, and I think that you, that makes for a good society.
0: Have you ever heard a good argument against free speech? No. I haven't. And have Because you, in, in
1: every case I will always turn around and say, actually there's a different way of dealing
0: with this. And have you ever heard from anyone who you thought was... Um, was infringing on your free speech and have you ever had situations in your in your adult life where you had that freedom of speech curtailed, either within the law or by agents who actively want to change the law? See, the interesting
1: thing, we just go back to the apartheid <laughs> era for a while, um, and The Nats used to say back then that there was absolute freedom of speech in South Africa. And to a large extent, they were correct. Hmm. The problem was under the National Party is that there was freedom of opinion, but there was not freedom of facts. Right. So you were not allowed to spread truthful information if that truthful information was censored. Okay. So, for example... They didn't like it. Yeah. So you couldn't... um, Write anything in, uh, uh, in terms of the Police Act. You couldn't write anything about police unless you got the police to comment on it and gave them equal space. That was written into the uh, uh, into uh, right the act. of reply. It's
0: more of a journalist
1: thing that. It well, is a free that, it wasn't exactly a right of reply. It was, uh, but uh, it, it, it had a chilling effect on. So even if I saw mm. a policeman shooting a kid in the back. Mm. I still had to go through a process of getting um, a quote from the police, which you know frequently you wouldn't say no, it didn't happen.
0: Yeah, Especially in the case in those days, yeah, in the
1: case of yeah. the Department of Defense, um, you were not allowed to write anything about the Department of Defense unless they said that um, it actually happened. It was a security risk. It was a security risk, absolutely. So uh, you were not allowed to quote anything from any prisoner. Um, so I grew up my entire life. I had no idea what Nelson Mandela looked like because it was illegal to have pictures of None Nelson Mandela. None of us Mandela. did, and
0: you couldn't Google him?
1: Yes. So, And the only point at which we suddenly became aware of what Nelson Mandela looked like was during the state of emergency, um, the Bureau for Information put out a publication which had a list of dangerous people, and it had a picture of Nelson Mandela in it. And in terms of the emergency laws, Anything that the bureau for information put out, you were able to publish, and suddenly, all of us in the country saw what Nelson Mandela looked like for the first time yeah. ever.
0: <laughs> you know, I remember the fascination, mm. even when people were, in, including me, in 1990, watching him being released from Victor Fist. No, it was from, um, yeah, Victor Fister. It was Victor Fest. Yes, and he, he, and the, the cameras <clears throat> were jostling to get that first shot of, and and this 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 stately gray-haired man walked out of there, and I thought, wow, that, that's the most famous man in the world. Yes. And so, no, one, uh, no one had seen him in person with so the exception I, I was, of his guards. I was watching
1: know? that from my apartment at, uh, at Princeton, and we had a whole oh. bunch of South Africans that were there, and sure. we were all glued to the
0: TV. Mm. Fascinating stuff. Okay, so before we get into the media stuff, on this freedom of speech thing, because you're an atheist— there tends to be, and I'm not being unfed atheists being one myself, but there tends to be this God shaped hole in many atheists and they fill it with things like free speech or secular humanism, whatever that is. Um, or they fill it with, you know, the idea of, of many of them have, have replaced uh, the, the, the the hole that religion supposedly leaves for some with politics. We we see it in the world today. There's lots of of leftism, which is actually just a craving in in adolescent souls for values, purpose, meaning, something greater than yourself. And sometimes, you know, whether it's wokeness or whether it's um, campaigning for Ukraine or whatever it might be, the people who put flags on their profile pictures in order to feel part of something, you don't feel that perhaps Things like free speech have taken an almost sacred place in your worldview. Well, I don't
1: think so. I, th- I think it, it, it's not something that I think about on a daily basis. You know, so it's it's, it's stuff that you kind of believe in. But uh, I, I suppose it's the difference between you know someone who's let's say born to Catholicism and you know so they go to church, but they actually don't think about uh, about the church, as opposed to someone who's converted and they suddenly become quite obsessed with it. So I think, you know, free speech and, and liberal values are just it, – it's something that's ingrained.
0: And where so, do you think that came from with you? I think it – Your parents?
1: <clears throat> well, a lot of it came from the fact that I read a lot as a kid. And so there were a lot of books that I read that, you know, taught things like self-reliance and um, – the terrible
0: import- stuff like that like accountability and-
1: accountability the importance of good character um, you know honesty yeah. all of that kind of stuff and
0: all that boring stuff that makes the world work yes <laughs> so what's happened with society where those things have have, have become distasteful to so many um, everybody is is desperate to be at the top of the victim hierarchy People are desperate to not be responsible for their own decisions. Everything else must be blamed for all the ills in your life and you must never take credit for any of the successes because that's pure luck.
1: I think a lot of is it, it is… Is it generational? I don't think it's as much generational as much as the fact that we've increasingly relied upon the state mm. to take responsibility for things that when I was a kid, we were told were things that you did as an individual. So the idea that the state needed to provide for you was never something that ever
0: entered my landscape at all. Well, the state, uh, when you were growing up, especially did not care about people of color. Sure. Which, but, you, but, which but, you would but, have fallen into the category
1: of. Right? It, it never was about that either. Look, I, you know, sure. No, enough,
0: but it becomes a talking point today. And I know you don't make a big thing about it, but in those days, yes. there wasn't the scope of possibility that there is now.
1: That's correct. But at the same time, you know, the fact that you didn't have anything to rely on meant that your options were pretty much infinite because that meant that you had to pretty much build whatever you wanted to by no, don't yourself. Don't spoil
0: this. I'm building a victim narrative for you, and you're just you're <laughs> chopping it apart here. Stop it. Why are you being so anti-left?
1: Well, it's because you're white, and you can't possibly understand my pain.
0: <laughs> well, exactly. Your lived experience, right? Uh-huh. I, I find this country is a fascinating place. So many of the things that are, that are good in the world can claim to have some sort of origin here, including our, our very species, right? But so many of the worst things, like if I, if I think back to uh, Roads Must Fall and that whole movement and how it's turned into essentially Black Lives Matter and this whole anti-colonial decolonizing project <coughs> all over the world, uh, South Africa has some things to answer for, as much as we have a contribution that we've made. And our contribution goes beyond Mandela and Peaceful transition and all of that stuff. What do, what do you think of, and what do people ask you about when you talk to them about being South African? It's been a while since I've had that particular conversation.
1: You know, well because to,
0: people don't care anymore. Yeah,
1: so right? you know there was a period during the nineties, and you know I wrote about it at the time. It was so how cool to be us. It, it, it was so cool, you know. And and, and I said at the oh. time, so uh, when uh, Mandela was stepping down in uh, in ninety nine, and I. Had, I Took my newspaper column and I, and I wrote an, an open letter to him. And the open letter was basically describing how cool it was to travel the world as a South African, you know, carrying your South African passport as a badge of honor. Because it says
0: in there, in the name of the president, and we happen to have had the world's most famous and probably the most morally,
1: um, certainly in terms of, uh, of of leaders of the last century. Yeah, very much. Yeah,
0: so. Uh, mm. Yeah, and I, I would say that also we we had. The ability to be friends with everybody. but we, we, we were friends with people who were actually enemies with each other and we well, could the, be friendly the, the with thing both.
1: That, the thing that fell apart was when we stopped being the rainbow nation and we suddenly started introducing apartheid in the form of black economic empowerment. And that suddenly started dividing the nation right down. Because okay. remember, up until the time that happened, I mean, we, we were a winning nation. You know, we are going
0: straight for the controversies here. Right? Yeah, you're not I even mean, giving me room to like <laughs> just to just you know, garden around the edges in this story. But okay, uh, is that where we so Bee is one of the places we went from?
1: Right? No, it it is the place. It's where we the went place wrong because because the point of then dividing us as a nation, race based yeah, policies, race based policies. Because up until that time, we were South Africans first and foremost. And now suddenly there was, uh, there was this reintroduction of a pecking order, which has gotten progressively worse. It has. And, Absolutely. Um, and there is nothing in that narrative that actually gives us any incentive for pulling together. And you can't actually build a nation unless you at least singing from the same hymn sheet on what it means to be a citizen of that particular country. So this is the problem that the United States has right now. The country has completely lost its way. So you know, it used to be that it was truth, justice, and the American way, and everyone aspired to those particular things. Now there's no longer that concept of of truth
0: and justice. Uh, Okay, but then to to bring it back to you, because I think you and I will have a tendency to talk about things like that because they interest us more than the personal. But I I do want, if nothing else in this interview, to to at least attempt for us to have a discussion about your your personality, the things you care about, family, all of those things. Is it important for you and do you consider your identity as an Indian South African to be relevant to discussions about being South African or about your place in the world or anything else? Look, it's not a defining point in the sense
1: of, something that i actually think about so they're very definite. It just is so yeah it just is so they're very there's some things that you know that are cultural mm. that are kind of innate to me that you know I've, I've basically grown up with and to a large extent they do like you
0: like cooking i can attest to
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> I well can. yeah but, and that's something that runs through my family and you, you take know, so. cooking mm. very very seriously Yes. And the reason why I take it so seriously is because, you know, I, I spent a lot of my life poor, mm. but I always had a fondness for good things. And, yeah. and, and I said, well, you know, one of the best ways I can get those things is to learn how to make them for myself so that I don't need to pitch up at very expensive restaurants. But, mm. uh, you know, so things that Indian South Africans do. One, one is that we prize education. Yeah, more than just about anything else. Yeah, so it, it, that's very much a defining point. And, and you know, I I often tell my fellow South Africans, if you spend more money on funerals than you do on school fees, you know, maybe you need to be shifting that cultural perspective. Because I'm very clear that that is a plus in terms of what my culture actually believes in.
0: That, and, and and the other thing that I think is. Distinctive about you as an individual is that because you're irreligious, and people always assume Indian South Africans have to be Hindu or Muslim. That kind of breaks the the mold as well.
1: Yes, except, you get a bit of a thrill out of breaking except, the mold.
0: You know, again, this is something that do, I tell do you, people. Do you enjoy breaking the mold? Just but by it's the way. not
1: really breaking the mold because Hinduism allows you to be an atheist.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, uh, no, yeah, it's, yeah it's, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's ingrained. That. It's ingrained in the that.
1: belief system, and the belief system is that. You know you can uh, there are basically um three paths to um self actualization and you know the first is service to your fellow human beings mm-hmm. um uh, the the second is uh, service to God and then the third is actually you know going and meditating up in the himalayas and sure um, and, more and spiritual that kind of stuff. stuff but there is nothing in terms of Hinduism that says that you need to believe in any particular deity or worship any particular deity. I mean, that's something that's there, but it's not a requirement. And, and also, the, there's nothing prescriptive about it. So there's nothing in Hinduism that says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, all of that stuff. It does say that there are consequences. So if you, if you kill, um, the consequences are that it's actually going to affect were you. you. Were you raised Hindu? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and look, uh, I, 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 I still take part in you know all of the the, the festivals. You know, I single. I, sure. I, I, sing a lot I of do songs. Christmas, but uh, but at the same time, I, I went to an Islamic kindergarten when I was a kid. You know, and so you know we would yeah. um, uh, all line up in the morning and uh, uh, we would recite the declaration of faith, uh, you know, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, um, <laughs> uh, and, and and so forth, and uh, and then I went to uh, a Catholic. Um, primary school and uh, uh, Anglican high school. This in is why
0: I ask if you like breaking the mold because all of these experiences while some of them you didn't choose they were chosen for you I think it gives you a richness of experience which if if you are the stereotype and there's a, there are a lot of South Africans who fall into stereotypes you know I sometimes think about the way I say things or do things and I go that's so That's the kind of thing a comedian would make fun of because it's so South African. But with your international experience, the way you were raised, these different schools that you went to, that creates a much fuller person by the time you get to 25 than if you just do the same thing. You're only in the same neighborhood. You go to the school that people expect you to go to. You're around the people people expect you to be influenced by. Sure, are and your children being raised that <clears throat> way? I try
1: as as much as possible you know to expose them to to a wide variety of stuff and uh, look uh, you know that that has its pros and it has its cons as well because um, it can actually end up being a pretty lonely place because you know people want to fit you into particular boxes um, wherever you happen to be and even even though you can actually have fun you know hanging out and and discussing you know particular things within a very narrow cultural context if it doesn't uh, actually define you if it's not your be all and end all mm. can actually be quite kind of frustrating and uh, you know hence my saying it, it becomes a bit of a, of a lonely space when people start talking about um you know issues of the world from a a, a relatively narrow perspective, and, and you've actually got this very broad sense of everything that's happening around. And do you really want to spend like the next five years trying to explain to them, well, actually, you know, the stuff that you believe in um, is not necessarily the way you think it should be working. More often than not, it's a lot easier to just, you know, kind of smile and keep quiet.
0: A bigger frame of reference, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so the other thing that I'm kind of obsessed with at the moment that I think you might have some wisdom to share on is the idea of being a generalist or a specialist. And I think both have tremendous value. We need a specialist when it comes to, you know, mechanical engineering, for example. You don't want some guy who's just making it up as he goes. But generalists are tremendously valuable in society these days. People who know a little bit about many things. Would you categorize yourself as the former or the latter? And, and what do you see in, in the difference and the value of the two? I think that,
1: you know, one can be a generalist, but I, whenever I have something that piques my interest, I try to end up being a bit of a specialist in it. You know, so we, we've had similar discussions around um, things like, well, at the point at which suddenly solar energy becomes a thing. I go out and I study this stuff to a great yeah. extent because yeah, you, you know years. I want to find out you know how does this stuff work? What are the technologies that are actually involved? What what's the cost benefit analysis that one applies to this kind of stuff? And so yes, it is a very broad perspective, but one needs to be able to speak with authority. Yeah. On uh, you know so you can't just you know be sitting back and um, uh, and and saying I know um, how to make a plane take off. You know, you also need to know how to land it. But, uh, but yeah, you hope so. I, yeah, but I do want... So on my very first car, uh, I rebuilt the engine myself, mainly because I couldn't afford to pay someone else to do it. It, it was a Peugeot 504, and the um, uh, uh, essentially the sleeve seals had, uh, had worn out, and so it was leaking water into the cylinders. And so I had an uncle who was a mechanic who... But you Basically said, allowed this, me to is, use, this yeah. is why I
0: ask you the question. It's not by mistake. I, I, I know this about you, that you, you will you'll learn to take the engine apart. Yes. Where most people will just call the mechanic. Right. <laughs> and and you have, you've run an election campaign because you found out what you think we need to do to fix this country. You've even written a book about it. Sure mm-hmm. uh, And I know you 've done the research you've you 've looked yes. at all the systems and you 've decided this is the best, and i 'll explain to you why and it 's all very practical you 're not trying to start a new ideology you 're a very practical guy, yes, this comes from stripping engines and learning how to do computational fluid dynamics
1: very much so <laughs> uh, but uh, so I, I think that uh, a lot of people try to. You know, they're, they're, they get a bit derisive about stuff. They say, you know, jack of all trades and master that, of none. That's,
0: I hate that saying. Do you uh, hate it as well?
1: Well, it's it, it actually I, – I think to a large extent people do that to make up for their particular shortcomings because, you know, a lot of people are very specialized in terms of yeah. of what they know and um, – Also, uh, our education
0: system, and, and you spoke about the importance of education to Indian South African families, but everybody in South Africa thinks the best thing you can do is become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. Which yes. are very specialized things. Yes. I mean, if you've got a heart surgeon, you want them to be a specialist heart surgeon. You don't want them to be someone who also does carpentry and a little bit of uh, of haberdashery of the weekends. So the the guy who was my uh,
1: my GP at, at at Princeton all those years ago, um, his name was John Seed. He's a, a doctor, and uh, yes, and so uh, um, at, at kind of the end of my second year. Uh, John Seed took two years off, went back to college and got an engineering degree. And at the time, he was in in his 50s. And it was just something that he wanted to do because he wanted to learn more about very specific stuff. And I think that that's the type of mentality that those of us who commit ourselves to never saying, all right, I'm, I'm not learning anything. From now on, you know, I've mm-hmm. learned everything there is yeah. to learn. And, you know, people who work in very particular careers, they end up being in that space where, you know, if you're an ophthalmic surgeon, for example, I guess the, the stuff that you will learn is when new pieces of equipment come along, but, you know, there's only so much you can learn. Yeah,
0: about I always, I, I was, I'm, I'm mark, and I don't know if you'd agree with this definition, I'm, I mark intelligence not by how much people know, but by how much they want to know. And the moment you decide, no, I, I know enough now, and I, don't, I can't imagine a person doing that, then I think you are so full of hubris, you're just ready for the fall.
1: Yeah, see, one of the useful things for me is that I've ended up swapping careers so often. and uh, <laughs>
0: Jack I, of all trades, <coughs> master of now. Yeah, I but but, but
1: you see, the useful thing about that is that you end up going into something where you literally know nothing about it. Yes, Everyone understands the basics of how a business works. So, you know, we, we speak about spaza shops. You say shops. everyone
0: does, but I don't think so.
1: Well, we speak about spaza shops often. And again, you know, people, uh, you know, speak about spaza shops with derision. But the, yes. the fact of the matter is that um, a spaza shop is, encapsulates the essence of what's needed to run a business. And more often than not, mm-hmm. if you take a look at, uh, at spaza shops, more often than not, they get run by, by immigrants yeah. Because they have no safety net and they're starting up from scratch and there's essentially two things that are happening. There's the guy behind the counter um, and then it's normally his wife who's at the tour. And you know, so you've got the person who's managing um, the, the finances and the other person who's managing the inventory. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're selling your inventory at a higher price than you got it for, you have a business. And you can apply that sponsor shop model to every single business. And at the point at which you end up spending money in any business, if the money that you're spending is not going to be increasing the profitability, then you shouldn't be spending the money. You know, So if you apply that mindset, no matter what business you go into, you'll be able to make it work if you can understand the basics of what actually drives that. So... The useful thing for me is that I'd go into a business where i know absolutely nothing about it. So the time that we started uh, ETV, I knew nothing about television. But there was a huge advantage that I had that I knew nothing about television. And that meant that every time someone told me this is the way in which we do things, I would say, why? And then they'd say, well, because that's the way that we've always done it. And then I'd say, what about if you do it this
0: way? And, and usually they'd shout and scream and kick and wail, but they, they'd go, oh, yeah. maybe. And sometimes it would work out better your
1: way. Well, more often than not, it did. So, you know, I ended up with a situation with, with ETV News at the time. So there'd be people at that, um, who'd be working um, in the news department and I'd say, I'd want some, I want something done in this particular way. And the person who would be sitting by the desk say, now that can't be done. <laughs> and so I would say, get up from the chair, and I would sit down at the chair and do it, and then I turned around and say, now why do I need you?
0: <laughs> which, um, which didn't bring me many friends no, at the time. No, I mean, there are a lot of people in media who really don't like me and who don't like you. But as Julius Malema once said to me, but there are more who like you and there are more who like me. Um, you've done in media, print media, Yes. IOL, you were in charge there for a little bit. I wasn't in charge of IOL. So, what was your uh, exact designation? You were you were head of corporate affairs. No, that is… So, oh, no, no, no sorry. That Managing was... editor of the Cape Times. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that, that was during, during right. the… Uh, and new the, enterprises manager at independent newspapers.
1: Yes. So, that was… Uh, so, I spearheaded independent newspapers going into radio. So, I was part of the… The startup team of kia FM. Yeah, so I was on on the first and YFM board, on the first board of Kaiya FM. Well, I went to YFM after the fact, so I went and rescued YFM at the point at which it was tanking financially. But right. uh, um, so we also launched soccer magazines from, from the point of view of independent newspapers back then. Mm-hmm. So Amakosi, the Brazilians, uh, the Mighty Birds; the, those titles all kind of fell under me. Uh, We had the Star and Essay Times International, which was uh, essentially a free sheet for South Africans in London that we used to produce. Wow. So that was when uh, I was Jean-Jacques Corniche's boss because he was editor of that back then. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So we have fairly substantial background in in print. I drew up the first uh, business plan for The Daily Sun. Yeah? Yeah. So and… so it was Dion Duplessis' uh, brainchild. He was my boss at the time. And I drew up the business plan, and we went and presented it to the Independent Newspapers Board. And they said, nah, it'll never work. Crazy Already. idea. Already? Yeah. And uh, so that was the point at which uh, I then went back into journalism, You know, became managing editor of the Cape Times, and then I hopped across to ETV, at which point Dion then gave me a call. He said, But I've got the money. Let's go do this thing. And I said... Dion, I can't, you know, because I've signed up with uh, with ETV. And, of course, um, The Daily Sun became the biggest newspaper success story ever.
0: Absolutely. You know, selling you, any regrets?
1: Million. No. I mean, uh, I, well, I regret the fact that Dion's not with us anymore. I was yeah. deeply fond
0: of the guy. What yeah. a phenomenal talent. Yeah, you know, um, there's a lot. of of untold stuff in the media story of South Africa. And you you told me about IOL and then ETV and, and radio is such an important part of that. First time I ever heard about you was when you were at YFM because obviously I was in radio at the same time so I was paying attention to that stuff. But the story of YFM is a great story and there are lots of people involved but you were there to watch some of the most cool things happen that had happened in independent radio. Yes. Probably since 702 was launched.
1: Yes, very much so. And there was a lot of cutting-edge stuff that we ended up doing. But I think the single thing that um, that happened at YFM under my watch was mm. the training program. So I put yeah. in place the Y Academy. And I personally ended up training 252 people during the course of the 10 years that I was there. Jeez. And they're, they're all some of the biggest names that you have in, in radio today. Well, I I remember you had that conversation with a bunch of the former YFM people. So you had, I think, you had Fresh there and Greg Maloka and a bunch of others, and uh, and I think they they were all telling you about Mm. you know the Y Academy and the
0: amazing stuff that that we ended up doing. Okay, so you you left there, and and since then, I mean, you've really done a whole cornucopia of things, including, as I hinted at, the political party. The other thing about you that I've admired is that you don't look at any of these experiences and go, well, that was massively successful. This one was a failure. You look at all of them as being uh, compounded into a a totality of experience, which gives you the courage to go and try new adventures. And when you look at the political party, you obviously didn't get the seat in parliament that we were hoping for. I mean, I voted for you, Um, but it wasn't a waste of time. No, not at
1: all. And um, well, I, I think, you know, all of us who were involved at the time, put in a, a, a fair amount of our time yeah. uh, into it. And and of course, including they, they were, your wife and like lots yeah, of people. But, lots uh, of but I mean, the, the, so there, there was real money that got put into it. I mean, I, I, I've, you know, forked out 250,000 out of my own pocket. for Just the to ele- register. Yeah, for the for the election deposit. And Again, I have no regrets at all at having done that because what we were trying to do was to actually shift the conversation away from the doom and gloom stuff and actually focus on solutions. And I think to a large extent that actually kick-started a lot of stuff in terms of how people began
0: have um, any of the political parties that are still around acknowledged that you gave them any ideas? Because some of them have been using some of your ideas. Yeah, they have. They have.
1: Uh, yes. Yeah. So, so, I mean, you know, Moosey is very quick to, you know, come <laughs> up with a ten-point plan and uh, and and all of that kind of stuff, which uh, is, is still on the ZACP website, by the way. If you go and, uh, and
0: right, and, and, so you can uh, see it there if and, you don't believe and, us
1: and, and and check it out. <laughs> but again, the point was. We were very happy to have people steal the ideas. Sure, And it was kind of difficult to explain this to people. So, you know, I'll use the YFM example at the training program. The kids, so there'd be 12 kids at a time that would be on the the program. And I would walk them through everything in terms of the business. I'd take them through finances. I'd take them through business models. I'd, I'd Tell them our strategic plans, and many of them would ask. They'd say, "You know, aren't you afraid that um, someone's going to take these ideas and steal them and use them?" Or and steal
0: I, the talent once you've trained them?
1: Yeah, but that, again, that you know was built into the program because we we train people at a faster rate. In fact, you want,
0: you wanted that.
1: Yeah, for them. Yeah, oh. train people at a faster rate so that the industry keeps um, absorbing them. But they used to say, "Are oh, you not afraid someone's going to steal these ideas?" And I'd say, "Well, by the time they start implementing these ideas, you're already far ahead. We're already far ahead, and we're implementing the next batch of mm. ideas and and really, what we want is for people to start picking up these ideas and claiming them for themselves and hopefully doing better things with them than than we're doing, you know because <laughs> that's really how we grow as a country right it's It's not like I mean, we, we we grow the pie. It's not we all sharing the same pie. Yeah, and
0: that brings us to your latest project, which is this book, and you you're giving very solid advice to anyone who wants to read it about how to fix South Africa, and a lot of this stuff is stuff you've spoken about on the show with me with Pumi, um, but but this idea of of self reliance and of resilience is, I think, a very common South African theme. Yes. We like to solve our own problems. Yes. We're not actually a nation that just sits and waits for things to happen.
1: I think uh, look at w- one of the things about the interesting legacy of uh, of apartheid mm. was that it did create among the Boers at the time a great sense of self-reliance. So a lot of stuff that could no longer be obtained from outside the country actually got… Um, done inside the country just simply because, you know, needs must. I mean, so Sassol, oh. for example, yeah. would never have come about if not for sanctions. You, know, you take the same viewpoint and you look in terms of what's happened in the recent past. So Israel, you know, one of the reasons why I'm… Uh, let, let's leave the Netanyahu's politics aside and let's leave morality discussions of the war yeah. aside but let's look at the psychological makeup of israelis and their quest for self-sufficiency and Jeez. their ability to invent new technologies it's it's a, it's a this thing it's about profound making the desert bloom you know it's just profound the, yes the, the fact that you have a, a country in the desert that's a net exporter of uh, yeah. of food to the rest of the world that in itself is a, is a starting point you look in terms of what uh, what's happened in the case of russia Where the U.S. for the longest time said, oh, Russia is a gas station masquerading as a country. Right. And they keep saying that the economy isn't actually – it's a third world economy and all that sort of thing. And you look at the astonishing range of stuff that's actually come out of that country. The fact of the matter is that the Russians are still the only people who are able to get an aircraft – to get a spacecraft up to the the space station – and then land it. Okay, so Elon is, has still been trying to um, <laughs> to work on that for for quite a while. You know, we still. Yeah. So the West still does yeah. splashdowns in the ocean and, and that type of stuff. But yeah. uh, um, you look at the fact that the U.S. space program actually existed for the past ten years because of the fact that the Russians were nice enough to allow them to piggyback on rides up there to the uh, to the space station.
0: You don't believe in American exceptionalism.
1: <laughs> Listen, I'm a great fan of of, of the United States. I, I love that country, and it it gave me an education, right? You know, uh, I, that I could never have dreamed of having uh, otherwise, and you know, made some of the best friends ever. It, it's a country that's lost its way culturally because of the fact that it's this divisive critical race theory that's pulled the country apart, much to a large extent as we are losing our way out here because we're race-obsessed.
0: Yeah, that's, it's, and it's just such a zero-sum game. Like, you just, the, you know, nobody wins from this stuff because uh, the zero-sum is zero. Yes. Um, but it, but it, it amazes me that time and time again, people like you are able to find... Positive solutions to very, very serious problems and and when you write a book which is you know ambitious to say how to fix South Africa, you mean it I do because <laughs> you know all of the stuff
1: that i 'm putting forward there is uh, there are things that if if we do these very basic things it, it can immediately make a huge difference in uh, in the in the lives of people, you didn't want to call it "Make South Africa Great Again." <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I think greatness is is kind of a moving target, I, and yeah. uh, this idea of greatness as being something that wasn't in, in the past doesn't sit well with me. I, no, I, I don't know because we that... should ever be improving. Yes,
0: and and. Technically, that's the difference between a conservative and a reactionary, right? Is that yes. the reactionary like those Buddha you saw in their wagons on your way to UNISA? Yes. They want to take things backwards, whereas a conservative wants to keep things where they are and keep learning new things. Yes. And, and, and a liberal wants end. to change yeah. everything. Yes. <laughs> and then a, a, a revolutionary just wants to burn it all down.
1: Yes. And we've seen how that, uh, that ends up in, in so many parts of the world where yeah, things kind so, of fall apart.
0: What What is your domestic life like? You, you have a wife and children. Uh, you love to cook. You are about as self-reliant as anyone I know you have dogs. Uh, you have a snake. Yes. <laughs> Talk me through this. <laughs> it, it,
1: look, it, it, it's relatively boring. Um, so one of the things that… that Sounds we,
0: like the Garden of Eden.
1: <laughs> you know, one of the things that… Just one uh, snake. Uh, so… Uh, there's a particular ritual that we're very big on and that's the idea of the family sitting down around the dinner table and having dinner together. And um, I, I think the reason why that's important is it it's a chance for everyone to actually come together and to have a
0: conversation. And, and take an interest in each other. Exactly, You see so many yes. uh, people who are just so disconnected from their own families. No one's really caring about, each other's lives no one's particularly interested in what everyone does for a living and that's where things unravel well at they're, they're, that they're, level mm. like that's where society is built yes well there are so many
1: people who they will go home and plant themselves in front of the tv and you <laughs> know, put a slice of pizza on their lap and <sighs> uh, uh, but you know we we sit down at the table they're knives and forks you know you we do it light, properly we light candles um and you know the it it's just the sense of ritual you know so most people say grace we we just light candles uh we we do raise our glasses and uh, um and and clink and you know occasionally you know one of the kids would say um uh, i'd like to drink to my having done um uh Ninety percent
0: on my biology exam today, and you know, so we all. I have no our doubt glasses. your children are getting ninety percent on the no. biology exams. <laughs> but but celebrating those small wins also with each other, yes, builds the kind of sense of either ambition, which is a, a very good thing to have, and or confidence that you'll need in the real world. Very much so, and uh, I, I think that those uh, those
1: rituals actually become very important because you you can then extend that to the way in which you engage with the rest of society um, you know because if if you have that basic respect for your family structure you then end up having mm. a, a, a sense of respect that filters through to your larger community
0: well that's why that's why I think it's it's relevant to discuss it with you because when you talk about fixing the big things you got to start with the things that are within your control and family is the number one building block for all of this. Yes. What kinds of adults do you want your children to be?
1: <laughs> I hope they never stop learning. So I think that's probably the single biggest thing. Um, I think, you know, certainly in, in, in terms of all of my kids, they they're very considerate in terms of, their engagement with other people. So, and I, I use that, you know, in the sense that they're respectful in in terms of how they engage with other people. They're they're likely to help, and you know, they'll help you carry packages. They'll open doors for you, and it, it's that very basic level. So of, they're
0: basically not shits, is what you're saying.
1: <laughs> I'd I'd like to think that uh, you know that that fundamental level of politeness yes. and uh, yes. Uh, is 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 something decency, but look to, a, to a large extent yeah. that that's something that we have in common as South Africans. I'd like to think, yeah, you know. So it it's like mm. you know the the Afrikaans kids who will call any uh, older person um or you know I get called malume or tate and yeah. uh, and and I like that you know it's. Uh, it it's 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 showing a, a basic respect for the fabric of society and i i think that that's actually the building blocks of of a successful nation you know rather than uh, the the kind of stomping and screaming that you know some political parties you know particularly wearing red
0: berets happen to do these that's days because they didn't ever sit down for dinner and uh, they weren't able to tell their parents what they're up to. Sure. And they uh, they didn't have that grounding, maybe. I'm yeah. just I'm just but also speculating. It, you know,
1: the, the idea of, of having conversations without taking it personally and you know, shouting at each other and it, it, it really is
0: it, oh, it it starts there. I would love I would love for you to be uh, like everybody's lecturer. You talk about the the students who taught radio. I'd love for you to just help people understand that arguing is actually a perfectly acceptable form of communication. And in fact, it could be the most valuable stuff you do. I love a good argument. Yes. We've got to learn to do that more. I, I just it's so nice to talk to you about this stuff, which really matters, because what are we going to do about Russia and the Ukraine or Israel and Gaza? You know, this is the stuff that I think makes makes people tick. So yes. it's lovely to sit and talk to you about it. Thank you, Canton. Cliffcentral.com